Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Damien Barr here in Brighton, welcoming you to another Salon exclusive, where you get to be the very first to hear about the books that are coming out, which we are most excited about. Today's book is by an author whose name you might recognise. It's Harriet Evans, and her new book is The Beloved Girls. This is a novel that The Independent is already calling spellbinding. Now, it combines eerie historical fiction, a coming-of-age story, and a murder mystery. It takes us from the curious ancient beekeeping rituals of the Hunter family to the visions of our very unreliable narrator, Catherine. When Catherine disappears from a London train station after a series of strange events, nobody knows why she's vanished or where she's gone. The answers may or may not lie with a person called Jane Lestrange and take us to a fateful and tragic summer in 1989 on the Vane's estate. Here's Harriet to give us our first glimpse of the Hunters. Hello, I am really excited to be reading an extract from my new book, The Beloved Girls, which is out in Harbach on the 19th of August. This is exclusively for the listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. I'm going to read the first few pages from the prologue of the book, which sets up the story. A young girl, Janie Lestrange, and her father are driving to a house in darkest Somerset by the sea to spend some time with some old family friends of his who he's never really mentioned before. And this is a weekend away that has a really long-lasting effect on Janie. She falls in love with all of them and thinks they're amazing. And the proper story opens after the prologue with a barrister called Catherine, who is in her late 40s. She's very successful. She lives in London, has this amazing life. But we start to realise she's cracking up and things aren't what they seem. And she keeps seeing this strange woman appearing um, who keeps talking to her. You realise she's not telling you, the reader, the truth. And then the story goes back to 1989 and what happened the summer when Jane Lestrange comes back to stay with them for a second time. So the prologue is just her arriving for that first visit to Vane's when they're both quite young girls. Prologue, October 1983. I was 12 when I first went to Vane's. My mother had walked out on us the previous month. I assume this is why we were invited. The postcard Sylvia sent my father asked us to please come for a few days and bring Janie. Oh, do come, Simon. Surely you will come now. So Daddy and I drove down from London, insistent October rain following us all the way. My father and I often took day trips out from the suburbs into the English countryside to Windsor Castle or the Chilterns or Stonehenge when I was only five when you were still permitted to scramble about the vast lichen-covered stones. Daddy made these trips magical for me, peppering the day with jokes, talk of ancient kings, natural phenomena, songs and excellent sandwiches. All shall be well, little one, he'd say if we hit traffic or when a seagull on Lime Ridge's beach stole my Nutella sandwich. And all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. 
It's Julian of Norwich. After he died, I found it in his wallet, torn from a library copy of Revelations of Divine Love. I hadn't realised it was a quote from someone else until then. Strange to say it, but I didn't really miss my mother. I think I knew she didn't belong with us. She made the house a dark, anxious place. She so obviously disliked my father and could not engage at all with his mad schemes, his living in the future, his avoidance of the past. So the drive to Vane's, our first trip since she had left, was exciting. Our shabby mock Tudor semi was a tip and it was good to be going away, Daddy kept saying. He'd pick me up from school early so we left in good time. She has corns, he'd airily inform my teacher as I packed my pencil case, watched with envy by Claire and Ems and the rest of the class. Dreadful corns. Miss Linton had smiled as we left. My father had that effect on people. Goodbye, Mr Lestrange, she'd called. I hope you feel better, Jane, dear. We laughed about it in the car, eating opal fruits. I was designated DJ. We fought a little over that. Daddy always wanted jazz and I wanted pop music. But we were able to compromise. Eventually we settled on Kate Bush. Kitty and Joss have exiats this weekend, he told me, so you'll meet them too. They're the same age as you. I didn't know what exiats meant, but I nodded. I was with Daddy and everything was all right. For most of the rest of the journey, he was happy, singing old jazz standards, asking for coffee from the thermos. But as we left the motorway and drove further west, through that thin strip of Somerset coastline above Exmoor, bordering Devon, where the countryside becomes dense, hilly woodland peppered with ancient castles and grand remote houses, my father grew silent. I haven't seen them for so long, he said a few times. This feels very strange. Eddies of swirling leaves rose and fell in front of us on the twisting lanes. Periodically, the green sea of the Bristol Channel flashed before our eyes, fringed by trees, then disappeared. How do you know them? I asked at some point, shivering in the rickety old ford, which was always rather touch and go on long journeys. Knew him in the war. I knew her mother in London, was all he said. He was quiet for a long time. And abruptly he added, Sylvia's wonderful, and I'm sure her children will be too. It's a funny old house, Janie. They have this ceremony every summer. What kind of ceremony? There's a chapel in the grounds of the house, half derelict. They keep bees in there. Bees, I said, amused. I remember it really clearly. Bees. They were strange alien creatures, and beekeeping was not something anyone I knew did. Every year on the same day, they process across to the chapel. They open the combs, taste the honey, take it back to the house. Half for them, my father winced as though he had bitten down on a sore tooth. And half for us. It was almost dark by the time we arrived, though it was not yet five, but the thick woodland behind the house seemed to cast all in front into gloom. I could hear a dog barking frantically over the whistling wind as we trundled slowly up the driveway. As we got out of the car, soft rain gently soaked us. The trees were darkest green and orange above us, the faintest sliver of a teal sky gilded with silver and gold from the setting sun. A side door opened and a lantern overhead was switched on, throwing us into relief like criminals caught in the act. We froze. 
Ah, come in, dear, Simon, out of the rain, called a woman's clear voice. Shall we, Janie, said Daddy. He rubbed my arm. Listen, old girl, they're a bit, well, they're different to us. But we go back an awfully long way. Sylvia's invited us and it means a great deal to me that she did. I, I have to make sure she's all right, you see. The rain was coming down heavily now. Under the open boot, his face was cast into shadow, the light from the lantern an ugly mustard colour. He looked tired and suddenly I knew he didn't want to be there. We grabbed our bags from the boot. My father's capacious Gladstone, which was like Mary Poppins' carpet bag, it could hold anything, and my nylon pastel backpack, which my mother had bought me before she left, a symbolic present, if ever there was one. We dashed through the side gate towards the light, and someone pulled me inside. I stood in the hallway, dripping wet as Daddy took off his coat. The house smelled of wood smoke and had metal, tinny, waxen, turpentine smell. Inside, sound had a curiously deadened quality. In the cramped hall was a strange wooden half-table, half-box on tall legs, carved all over with leaves and fruit and bees. Above it was a portrait of a youngish man, his body caught in profile, head turning towards the viewer, as if caught in the act. The effect was odd, like a photograph, not a painting. I stared at him, at his hooded eyes, the long, tapering, curiously white fingers. I didn't like it much. I shivered in the cold as Daddy held out his hand. Hello, darling Sylvia, he said. The woman who'd pulled me inside and was now standing under the swinging light bulbs didn't shake hands. She flung herself at my father. Come here, oh, come here, she said. He wrapped his arms around her, patted her hair, and he gave a deep, strange, heartbreaking sound I didn't understand. Not then, not for a long time. You're here, she whispered, looking up at him when she finally released him. Darling Simon, you're really here, and this must be Janie. She came towards me, clasped my face in her thin, small hands. She was like a girl. In fact, she'd have only been in her late thirties, but I was twelve and knew nothing. This was Sylvia Hunter. You're very like your dad, she said, stroking my face, and the warmth of her motherly touch was repulsive to me. I moved away. Joss, Mary, Kitty, Kitty, they're here, she called with a brightness which I knew well. We were always going to houses where people didn't want us. Daddy misunderstanding invitations or my mother not wanting to be there and children who didn't want to say hello. She had to repeat herself before from around the corner of the wood-panelled hallway three faces appeared. These are the twins. This is Joss and Kitty, said Sylvia. And this is little Mary. She's only nine. Joss tousled head in an outsized rugby shirt, politely shook Daddy's hand and nodded at me. Good evening. I tried not to show it, but I was impressed. Boys my age back in Greenford merely grunted. Mary jumped up and down, excited that we were here. She chewed a plait and hung onto her mum's arm. Then Kitty stepped forward. I felt my father pushing me towards her until we met under the pool of golden light. Hi. Hi, I said. I'm Catherine Hunter, she said formally. She was in fact quite shy. I didn't know that then. I only saw how beautiful she was. You can call me Kitty. I'm Janie Lestrange, I said. She took my hand. I stared into her face, her dark gold hair spilling over her shoulders, her wide, generous mouth, 
her tall frame. Come on, she said. She smiled. I saw the gap in her crooked teeth, the kindness in her eyes. We found a hedgehog this afternoon in the leaves. Accidentally nearly set him on fire. Rory's locked up. He keeps trying to eat him. Do you want to come and see? Yes, I said. He's in the shed. I think he's a he. Here, she rummaged in the pocket, took out a battered, thin white paper bag. Dad took me and Mary into Minehead after you picked us up from school. He let us chew sweets. I, I saved one for you. It was a blackjack. And I can still feel the almost wet waxiness of the paper, the anxious sliding of the nail to open up the tiny parcel, the delicious sweet sugar rush of glucose and aniseed on my tongue. And this is the last paragraph of the prologue. I didn't go to Veins again for over five years. In those intervening years, I didn't forget. I was reminded of Kitty every time I saw a dead bee on a windowsill or a pavement or in a dusty corner of our house and I'd stop and nod. I needed no reminder though, because I thought about her every day, how kind she was to me, how beautiful, her house, her gilded life, her air of confidence, as if everything was easy. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be one of them, more than anything, before or since. God help me. I sense a fair bit of foreshadowing in that final line. Our heartfelt thanks to Harriet Evans for her reading of The Beloved Girls. We hope this book will sweep you away as it did us. Everybody's going to be talking about it long after the last page. You will be too. The book is published by Headliner and available soon in all good bookshops. Your lovely local indie would be only too pleased to hand sell you a copy, so why not pay them a visit? And if you can't get to them, we've got the book in our online shop at bookshop.org. Thank you so much for stopping by. I hope you've enjoyed today's Salon exclusive. Happy reading.